Hey everyone, it's Beverly Hallberg. Welcome to a special pop-up episode of She Thinks, your favorite podcast from the Independent Women's Forum where we talk with women and sometimes men about the policy issues that impact you and the people you care about most. Enjoy. another topic episode of She Thinks, the podcast from Independent Women's Forum. I'm Inez Stepman, a senior policy analyst at IWS, and joining me today is Jennifer Braceris, director of the Independent Women's Law Center. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, Inez. Good to talk to you. Today, Jennifer and I are going to be chatting about Bostock against Clayton County, the recent ruling in which the Supreme Court held by a vote of six to three, including the court's four left-leaning justices, as well as Justices Gorsuch and Roberts, that an employer who discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity has violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, specifically prohibition on sex discrimination. So Jennifer, what what was the question here that the court was looking at? Because I I think there's a lot of confusion about what the the question presented before the court actually was. Yeah, well, the case is actually three cases that the court consolidated. Um, Two of them involved cases where an employee was fired because of that employee's sexual orientation. And another, uh, a third case involved the, uh, an employee who uh, was born male and transitioned to female and um, lost his job after he decided to transition. But the court consolidated these cases all together um, and, as you said, determined that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of those categories. Now, to some people, that might sound fair or that might, you know, not sound that controversial, but it's really important to remember that the question before the court in these cases was not whether it's wrong to discriminate against somebody because they're gay or transgender, and it wasn't whether federal law should outlaw that discrimination or if so, how it should outlaw that discrimination. Really, the only thing that the court was being asked to consider was whether the prohibition on sex discrimination in the 1964 Act already protects these categories of Americans. So it was really a very narrow statutory interpretation question. Um, and the court, I think, wrongly decided that the words because of sex in the statute include because of sexual orientation and because of gender identity, that you can't separate the concept of sex from those categories. Well, and and as even even the Gorsuch opinion admits, right, nobody in the 1960s thought that the public meaning of those words, um, the prohibition because of sex included gender identity or sexual orientation, um, and, of course, that's why Congress has repeatedly brought up the Equality Act, which does specifically include those categories, which is an admission that the act doesn't include them already. But what will, the consequences, what will the consequences be of redefining the term because of sex to include gender identity? I mean, has the court de facto erased the legal distinctions between male and female or at least the law's ability Um, to distinguish between males and females? I mean, what kind of consequences might this decision have? So we were very concerned with the potential consequences in this case, and that's why, as you know, IWF filed a brief 
on behalf of the employers, um, particularly in the transgender case. And our concern was that um, if the court redefined sex to include transgender status, that that would have an impact on a whole host of areas, both within the employment context and outside the employment context, that could adversely impact women and girls. And our primary concern was in the realm of women's sports because, as you know, Title IX um, prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex and education. It has very similar language to Title VII. Courts interpret them, um, you know, the same way. And so a ruling in the employment context would necessarily mean that uh, a transgender, you know, male-bodied athlete uh, could then claim that it was sex discrimination to have an all-female team that that person isn't allowed to compete on because he's physically male. Um, so that was our concern. Our concern was that this would ultimately, you know, end up taking away roster spots from women and girls, that it would be unfair competition for women and girls, and that ultimately it could lead to the elimination of sex-segregated sport altogether, which frankly is what I think Justice Gorsuch's decision did, because it really went beyond the concept of transgender identity. Because the, the way that he, you, you noted earlier when we were speaking, that Gorsuch sort of admits um, that nobody in 1964 thought that because of sex meant because of gender identity. People didn't even talk about gender identity then. It wasn't even a thing. So he admits that. Um, but the way he kind of achieves his policy result is by saying, look, any time an employer considers the sex of the employee and makes an adverse decision about that person, it's sex discrimination. And that, so that really turns anti-discrimination law on its head because it used to be every court understood that under any federal sex discrimination statute that discrimination meant treating men and women unequally. It didn't mean you could never think about whether they were men and women, right? So if you have a male bathroom and a female bathroom, um, you're not treating them unequally. They have the same space to use the restroom, um, but you are thinking about their gender in terms of making that distinction. Gorsuch has now said if, you, if, you, if, if sex at all enters the employer or school's consideration, you violated the law. So, you know, I'm just waiting for the kid armed with this decision who brings a lawsuit demanding a spot on a Division I women's, you know, hockey team. Because uh, as you say, this, this takes it, yeah, because it's it, it's almost making this entire question in a weird way of of um, of sort of gender identity. It's it's making it broader than than the questions that um, we've dealt with up till this point. And and you know, if it's a discrimination on the basis of sex, it's a discrimination on the basis of sex. It seems to be. Um, there's so many unanswered questions though in this, this Pandora's box that this decisions have have this decision has opened, right? So right. I, I think the dissent talks about, for example religious schools um, and whether or not they have the right to maintain a staff that agrees with the moral teachings of that religion. Um, are we right. going to see like an explosion of, of religious freedom cases, of, of RIFRA cases going forward? 
Um, and, and, and if we are going to, to litigate all of these questions under RIFRA, what about the rights of secular Americans who, for example, believe what used to be until about half a second ago uh, that was, was sort of the universal belief that uh, men and women are biologically distinct? I mean, um, what, what do you see the future of litigation under this case looking like? courts are going to be clogged up with this stuff for decades. And, you know, it's interesting because Gorsuch says, well, no, this is a narrow opinion. It only applies to this context, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, these cases might not reach the Supreme Court for a decade or at all, but they're going to start to be filed in the lower courts tomorrow. And they're going to affect real people tomorrow um, because, as you say, you know, it's going to affect the rights of religious organizations. It's going to, as Justice Alito pointed out, um, raise questions about health care coverage um, based on male and female status. Um, it's going to affect the First Amendment and people's rights to express views um, that, you know, as you noted five minutes ago, were <laughs> perfectly acceptable <laughs> views. Um, so it's going to have an impact across sectors, um, housing, education, you know, athletics, bathrooms, religious institutions, First Amendment. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to reverberate throughout all sectors of society. And, you know, some people say, well, isn't that just a scare tactic? Isn't this really, you know, not that big a deal? Um, but it actually, I think, is going to have far-reaching consequences, not just in terms of what it means to be male and female in America and, and you know, carving out certain separate spaces for men and women. Um, it's also going to have. It also has wide-ranging consequences for democracy um, and and American government that that are I think very disturbing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, we're talking about this huge category of of essentially public policy, right? Um, so so the question then becomes not only what is the correct way to to balance between the interests of say. Uh, transgender students on uh, UC campus um, and and the rights of women and girls to have their own track team. I mean, that is an issue where you're balancing different public policy issues. It seems designed for legislatures, not for the courts. I mean, it wasn't voters who made this decision. It was it was ultimately right um, nine nine justices in in black robes. So this this decision takes yet another huge category of public policy issues out of the hands of American voters. A majority of whom, by the way, are, are women, um, and hands them to the court. So it really seems, and th this trend seems to only accelerate recently, like the space for politics, for old-fashioned voting and politics, seems squashed smaller and smaller between what's an increasingly aggressive administrative state of alphabet soup name agencies um, rendering rulings and, and, um, and issuing regulations and dear colleague letters and the like, and then a federal court system that, um, you know, certainly seems to feel comfortable redefining the law that Congress wrote in 1964, for example, like the case that we're talking about. I mean, do where's the third branch of the federal government? Where where is Congress in all of this? Can Congress still amend, for example, Title VII or Title IX? I mean, what happened to Congress? Well, that, that's a big question. I think there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Um, and I would first say it not only takes things out of the political sphere um, where they should be resolved, but it also takes things away from it takes these decisions away from local communities, um, right? Because a lot of the a lot of times, 
you know, this isn't, we're not talking about Jim Crow segregation here. And lots of times local communities find ways to accommodate people and, and sort of, you know, strike a balance and everybody's sort of fine with the resolution and without making a federal case out of it, right? And so, I mean, I, I give this example all the time that there was a transgender student, um, well, a, a someone who was born female, who was recruited to Harvard College for the swim team, and um, she transitioned to male in between the time she was recruited and admitted to Harvard and the time that she got to Harvard. So when this person got to Harvard, she was now a he, and he wanted to swim on the men's team. And Harvard said that was okay, and nobody cared. Well, why didn't they care? They didn't, nobody raised an issue about it because this person went from being one of the top swimmers in the league on the women's side to being one of the worst swimmers in the league on the men's side. So in that case, nobody cared, and, but that's fine. Everybody was okay with it, and it wasn't a big deal. Now, if it had been the other way around, there would have been, I think, different interests, and it would have had to be dealt with a different way. But my point is, you know, Harvard just kind of dealt with it. Nobody had any complaints. It was what it was. And, but now they're, you know, they're sort of taking away the power of local communities to figure out a solution to the problem. And, and I really I object to that a lot. Um, as for Congress's role, you know, I think Congress should amend these statutes in response to this decision. I think Congress should start by amending Title IX to clearly state that, um, that it's okay to have sports segregated along the lines of biological sex, that if you don't have sex-segregated sport, um, you know, women are never going to be able to compete with men at that level physically. That's just science. And there are certain areas where men and women are different, and this is one of them. And therefore, we are going to have separate teams for biological males and biological females. And I think Congress should amend the statute to explicitly say so. Uh, well, well, I, I agree. Congress should definitely um, be be looking into uh, all of that, and 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 actually, I mean, I think this is something that could be politically supported in, with a quite wide band of of the American political spectrum, right? Um, I, I know you yourself are, are a mom of a uh, an athlete. A a your daughter is a college athlete, right? Or or high school athlete? Yeah, yeah. Become a college athlete. Um, uh, one of each. And, and so I. I I, um, I I definitely think that there's a lot of, of moms and athletes out there who um, would would certainly support such an amendment to Title IX. Um, I mean, look, Martina Navratilova supports that amendment, and she's she's <laughs> very, been very clear, you know, very supportive of of gay and transgender rights. But when it comes to sports, she understands the science, um, and you know. Frankly, I would say what the Title IX regulations say now, by the way, is not that schools have to have sex-segregated sport, but that they may have sex-segregated sport, and, and they all do. So, again, leaving it to local communities to sort of decide on a case-by-case basis, right? Another example is at my daughter's high school um, when she was, I forget, I think a sophomore, um, they didn't have a goalie on their field hockey team. Field hockey is a male. It's, it's in America, a female sport. Um, in other parts of the world, it tends to be 
uh, played by both sexes. Um, but anyway, they didn't have a goalie. The only way they could field a team and have a season is if they got this kid who was a boy who played ice hockey, and he was the goalie on the ice hockey team, and he volunteered to help them out for the season. And, you know, some people objected, but they ended up compromising, saying, yes, he can play because if he doesn't play, you're not going to have a season. So, again, that was it was a local compromise that was struck to deal with a specific situation without the federal government micromanaging. Um, so, you know, I think the law should be amended to allow schools to have sex segregated teams, but of course there are always going to be exceptions to the rule. So there, there are exceptions in other uh, contexts as well. This actually brings to mind for me uh, the, the Dear Colleague letter that was issued under Title IX uh, by the Obama administration to K-12 public schools um, on, on this, this exact matter on the accommodation of students who were born one biological sex and claimed to be another. And, and you're right that, you know, top-down sort of one-size-fits-all rules often, you know, destroy actually the kind of solutions and accommodations that uh, could be possible. So for, in this case, one school actually created a separate changing room. So they had a student who, I can't remember if, if was a biological boy who claimed to be a girl or vice versa, but um, essentially they created for this student an individual changing room. So um, the student would neither use the male nor the female locker room, but had um, his or her own locker room. Um, and, and that was actually deemed to be a violation um, that they, the, the Justice Department um, in the education, the Justice Division of the Education Department issued a decision basically saying, no, 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 you can't, you, you can't accommodate in this way. Um, you have to allow this student to use the locker room that is in accordance with, with the sex that he or she claims to be, um, which again, blew up exactly that kind of, of civil society, um, individual level solution that this school had worked out that was basically working for everybody. Um, that is exactly but, what I'm talking about, Inez, that, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it shouldn't be so black and white that, you know, that the rules have to be this way. Sometimes communities can figure these things out on their own in a way that balances the competing interests of everyone involved, both, you know, the privacy interests of of students as well as the, you know, the right of the person who's transgender to, you know, not be in a bathroom where they think that's not where they belong. So uh, we're talking a bit about these kinds of one-size-fits-all rules, uh, but, but uh, this, this case has really brought to mind another issue that you and I both work on at IWF, which is the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which, which I, would seem to kind of blow this whole transgender issue out of the water in the sense that, theoretically, under the ERA, you erase all sex distinctions and you wouldn't even have to claim um, to, to be the opposite biological sex if you wanted to win. If a, a, a boy wants to run on the girls' track team, he just says, you know what, you're discriminating against me on the basis of my sex because I'm a boy and that's wrong. I demand a spot on the women's track team. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, you know, conservatives for years have made the argument that if the ERA passes, um, that, that sex could be interpreted broadly uh, you know, to include really other categories besides male and female. And I think a lot of people on the left thought that was alarmist. But don't you think that this ruling sort of shows that that's inevitably what would happen if, if the ERA were to be added to the Constitution? 
you know, it's so funny. Um, even Phyllis Schlafly, towards the sort of end of the battle against ERA uh, in, in the early 80s, she'd actually moved away from, from uh, what, what was then called the potty wars, right? Uh, the, the, the claim that the ERA would uh, essentially outlaw uh, single-sex restrooms and locker rooms and public schools um, and, and in, in public universities. But, but now we're actually grappling with these issues, like so many things, um, you know, that, that were, were uh, the right is told that were hysterical, that were on the slippery slope and, and were engaging in a logical fallacy, fallacy taking um, a principle that the left upholds to its logical conclusion. But like so many of those other things, um, now we're actually having the potty wars, right? Um, absolutely, I think this has implications for the Equal Rights Amendment as as uh, of course you and I are, are both have legal backgrounds, so uh, we know this. But I think the the average American may be may, may be less familiar. This case, Bostock, was was adjudicated under a law that Congress passed, right? The the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, right? So that's different than enshrining it into the Constitution. This decision does not enshrine its outcome as part of the Constitution. It simply interprets a law that Congress passed in both of our uh, right, which theoretically Congress, Congress could repeal that law tomorrow if it wanted to. I mean, it's not going to do that, but it could. Or it could say, you know, we don't agree with the Supreme Court's interpretation of the law that we passed, so we're going to amend it and, and make our meaning clear, right? I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah, well, the ERA would foreclose that possibility, right? So if, if exactly. we were to ratify the ERA, um, it would take another constitutional amendment, the two-thirds of each House of Congress, and then 38 uh, states to, to go ahead and ratify the reversal of that or, or the amendment to that, and just like we had to, to uh, overturn prohibition by amendment because it was put into place uh, by amendment. Um, but, but yeah, I think they, they really overlap in, in one very important respect. It, they both show how many common sense distinctions between men and women the law actually makes that a lot of people I think don't think about because they're so common sense that we don't even we don't consider them in in the the sort of uh, typical parlance versus the term of art in a courtroom we don't consider them discrimination right but in terms of the legal uh, sense they are um, like the the potty wars we we're just talking about right like uh, different men and women's locker rooms and public schools having separate prisons for men and women, right? Um, and and this, this brings up a, a key distinction, I think, between discrimination on the basis of race and then discrimination on the basis of sex, right? We don't admit that any kind of discrimination on the basis of race, with the one exception of affirmative action, is constitutional, right? Um, and we'll see what happens with affirmative action after that. The 25 years are up. Um, but, but <laughs> They're almost up, Inez. I know it's counting down. Um, no, but but obviously affirmative action is a controversial uh, public policy in itself. But that is the single exception, right? That our courts recognize that that laws can distinguish between races for the purpose of rectifying past historical injustice. With 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 sex, the courts are allow some other exceptions, right? Like exactly like separating men and women in prison. That, that's not constitutional with regard to race. We don't have prisons for white prisoners and prisoners for um, prisons for black prisoners, right? We, we put all men together and all females together. But this is so common sense. We don't even think of it as a discrimination. But that's what I see as the, the real um, 
the real danger in the ERA is right. moving us from that, that flexible regime where we can actually take into account the fact that, yes, men and women are biologically different. And in some small percentage of cases or, or um, situations, those differences really matter. Uh, and they can, they can, in fact, uh, ignoring those differences can put women and girls actually in danger. And I really worry that we're moving more towards the government and the state not being able to account for sex in any way, uh, which I think right. is very dangerous. I agree with you 100% on that. And, you know, what I think is interesting is oftentimes one argument that people, uh, you hear people on the left make in favor of the ERA is that it would really just be symbolic, right? And that, you know, well, the court has recognized um, that the Equal Protection Clause covers women, covers all Americans, and that unfair distinctions on the basis of sex are already unconstitutional. So the ERA would just be symbolic. But this ruling really tells me um, that that would not be the case, that this would go much farther than current constitutional doctrine. And could you, could you explain that a little bit for the listeners? Because I think that's a really interesting um, controversy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what this all comes down to is erasing the distinctions between women and men. And, and like we've both said, you know, there are plenty of distinctions between women and men that are irrelevant or, you know, it would be irrational to, um, to distinguish between men and women or discriminate between men and women, for example, with regard to who can get a law degree or, um, you know, who can be an astronaut, right? Uh, there, there, but there are other situations in which it makes perfect sense um, to, to take into account the biological differences between men and women. For example, on the water polo team, right, um, where, where men are physically stronger in the boxing ring, it makes perfect sense to distinguish between men and women as if men are biologically stronger. In the prison context that I just mentioned, it makes women incredibly vulnerable to put them in with male prisoners. Right. Um, you know, on the front line. So the draft argument is sort of outdated um, in a way that perhaps it was just beginning to when Phyllis Schlafly made it in the early 70s. Um, but, but I think that there's an additional wrinkle to it in our modern context. Now that, you know, women can go into combat, it's still a very small number of women uh, who choose to go into combat. Now, if there's a draft and we have an ERA, is it fair that, you know, the vast majority of women drafted will take safe positions behind the front lines? Or do we have to perfectly balance our front lines between men and women? Otherwise, it's discrimination. If you're sent, sent to the front lines instead of being assigned to a, a, a desk job in the military, is that a discrimination on the basis of sex, right? There's so many. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out that she thought that this kind of equality principle would necessitate changing thousands of laws. And I, I think the average, uh, you know, voter doesn't realize how much of this assumption that men and women are different, an assumption that happens to be in accordance with reality, is actually built into our laws and permits uh, us to protect, especially women and girls, um, in situations where they might be vulnerable. And I actually wonder whether Justice Gorsuch even understands or even thought about the fact that this opinion was going to sort of append all of those distinctions, right? I mean, he seems to have convinced himself that this was a very narrow uh, decision based on one statute um, without really taking the time to think about the fact that if the ERA is added to our Constitution, 
the exact same reasoning that he used in this opinion can and will be used, as you say, to erase any legal distinctions or public policy distinctions between males and females whatsoever. I mean, I can't believe that that, that was sort of lost on him, but it seems to have been. Well, on that unfortunate note, uh, and, and, and <laughs> ominous note, I should, I should say, I think that is about all the time we have for today. So if you would like to learn more about the Bostock case, you can check out the Law Center's amicus brief at iwf.org. And if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, we'd love it if you would leave us a rating or review on iTunes and share this episode on social media. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, you're in control. I think, you think, she thinks.